Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You have to take a stock and you actually have to start reading the financials, actually start investing. And they don't do that. They do it at very surface level. Like they'll have you build out models. And models are, they are sort of useless. You can't really, never, you're never going to be able to project anything accurately. Hi there, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello, and I'd like to welcome my guest, Siddharth Singhe, co-founder and CIO of Ironhold Capital. Hi there, Siddharth. How's it going? Hi there, Phil. Uh, I'm doing well, and uh, it's my pleasure to be on the show. It's a wonderful show, and thank you for having me. So, you started in mechanical engineering, not in financial services. Tell us a bit about your background and your uh, previous life. Yep, so uh, I'm a mechanical engineer. I did undergrad in engineering, and uh, that was sort of a social proof-based decision, and I did not really put a lot of thought into it. My father is an engineer. Mm-hmm. My mom is a PhD in psychology, and I was reasonably good at mathematics, so I thought it should work out well with engineering because mm-hmm. it does require a little bit of math. Yep, it's a hard science, and I found myself more interested in economics and uh, investing in general. Uh, after college, I decided I would change my field and get into finance. And uh, I worked for about a year and a half, two years in finance. And then I came here to New York and I pursued master's in finance from Fordham University, Gobelli mm-hmm. School of Business. And that's where I met Paul. And um, so before we get on to uh, Paul and Einhold Capital, you um, had the good fortune of meeting a, a billionaire who um, helped uh, helped you change your life and move you into financial services. Tell us that story. Yep. So the billionaire we're talking about is Mr. Ramadu Agarwal. And uh, he is uh, probably the top five value investors in, in India. I met him at an event and uh, I just had like 10 minutes of conversation with him. And um, so I was trying to figure out how I could become a better investor and how he did it himself. And very interestingly, he used to actually fly out to Omaha during the 90s when there was no internet and to learn from Mr. Buffett himself. And um, he used to wake up at, I think, 5 a.m. and he would read financial reports of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, the Allen reports. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of what was his education. And the advice he gave me was, if you could just read those letters, you'd be good enough. And so I was introduced to Mr. Buffett. I knew who he was before that, in that he really directed me as to how I should go about learning investing. He's quite an inspiration, isn't he? He's, his um, advice is incredibly useful to a lot of people. Can you just maybe tell us one or two points that really inspired you from Warren Buffett's thoughts and newsletters? Yep. So he's an inspiration both on personal side of things, as far as what qualities you should have as a human being, and also technically as an investing. And um, on the personal side, um, integrity is very well known for that. And he hires people who have integrity, intelligence. So that sort of stuck stuck with me, like especially in the field of finance, when people trust you with their money, the most important thing is to make sure that you do a good job for them. That was number one, integrity. Uh, as far as investing itself was concerned, buying high quality businesses and thinking of yourself as a part owner 
in a business instead of looking at them like uh, these stickers that you see have a price that fluctuates every day. That sort of was transformative as well. So I think those would be two big things. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that the way of thinking about that? It's really gone by the wayside, the idea that you're investing in a company. So many younger investors now are hitting mm-hmm. um, their Robin Hood apps and um, they're just looking at the numbers on the screen and go, it's almost like a watching a horse race for some people. But um, it is a fundamental thing that's um, important to understand that you want to be in a company and that you're a part owner of that company. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you'd started your own company, how you would to look at it that way as well. Yeah, Absolutely. The trading mentality sort of, Robinhood is great in the sense that people can get started really quickly. It's very accessible. But with the ability to trade stocks uh, and with the news, and especially with social media and social proof, the long-term thinking has sort of gone out of fashion, at least a little bit. I mean, it was always a little bit fickle, but especially in this day and age, people jump in and out of stocks within a day, maybe multiple times a day. So... That doesn't serve them in terms of creating their wealth over time. And what the, the sad thing about that is if you get into the market and then you trade and then you don't make money or you lose a significant amount because you made money and then now you got unlucky, you sort of give up on the stock market completely. Like people think it's gambling. And so they sort of almost dismiss it instead of if they had the right approach, if they just had enough knowledge, like you don't even have to... Uh, do anything spectacular in the stock market. Just uh, do a little bit of dollar cost averaging every month and then the next one. And that will do well over time. But it's a weird mentality because the information is out there and it has been out there for ages now. I think it's sort of thrilling in a way, investing. So it sort of uh, invites that sort of alpha type behavior in people. It's interesting too when you think about um, Warren Buffett is running such a huge fund, but it's basically on a very small office where there's a lot of um, mutual funds that are running far less amounts of money. And they've got uh, dozens of people there trying to work it. Whereas uh, it really speaks to that idea that you, that you have to have patience and let the garden grow. Uh, That's uh, actually really, it's really interesting to see how you can throw a lot of brain power because all those mutual funds are really high, really smart people. And um, the idea is that if you can hire enough smart people and then make them work on one specific problem, it should give you good results, but it doesn't. With a lot of mutual funds, the reputation of the manager is at risk. Uh, Anytime he does anything differently from the norm, it's sort of, his job is under threat. It's difficult for them to create alpha when you have that sort of job pressure. You can't really do anything you deviate from the norm and then you underperform when the market is up. It just, if you do badly when the market is doing badly, it, it's susceptible to a lot of investors. But otherwise, it's just um, a problem. And uh, that's why they sort of hug the index and a lot of mutual funds sort of start mirroring each other. And so that also, when you add fees to that, it sort of gives the returns. You use the term create alpha. What does create alpha mean? So creating alpha would be having a performance superior to that of the market index. So a market index like an S&P 500 or Dow Jones. Uh, over long periods of time, they'll give you a return of maybe 8 to 10% in that region. Creating alpha would be you take a skillful manager and he does active picking of stocks or maybe other asset classes 
that allows them to get better than those eight to 10% returns. The name for that is alpha. Mm-hmm. You generate alpha. So alpha is just um, superior returns to what the general market delivers. Okay, let's get back to talking about Ironhold Capital and meeting um, your partner, Paul Gray. Tell us a little bit about that. It was at uh, Fordham University, wasn't it? Yep. So we were introduced to each other by a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And we were competing uh, in a consulting contest. I think it was ACG Cup. Unfortunately, we didn't end up participating because two of our members got ill. So we had to drop out of the contest. But me and Paul hit it well together because he's also had read up on all those books and he had that frame of mind of a long-term value-based investor. And he also wanted to, I mean, he is slightly older than me. And so he's a lot more experienced and uh, he wanted to do something on his own now. And the same was was for me as well. Uh, I wanted to start my own hedge fund. The only reason I couldn't do it in India is because you actually need a degree qualified to do so. That was the original intention of me pursuing a master's. We got together and this was about almost a year and a half ago. And then we started building out the strategy. Uh, what's our edge? So Paul concentrates more on real estate, doesn't he? And you're looking at uh, stock market returns. Is that the case? Yep. Um, he has experience in real estate, worked in a private equity firm, and you know, investment bank. He also has a few commercial properties that he has for himself privately. So we look at it together, typically. So it's not just uh, him looking at real estate and, and me looking at the equities, but that's more of his game and mine is more equities. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ShareSite is an online portfolio tracking tool that automatically records trades, dividends, ETF distributions, and gives you the reporting tools you need to help you manage your portfolio. ShareSite is pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Four months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSite.com slash Stocks for Beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. It'll help you save money at tax time and improve your investing decisions. That's ShareSight.com slash Stocks for beginners. A young person getting into the financial services industry, what advice would you give them? Well, first of all, is it a good place to work? So I think that would depend on the person himself. I mean, I sort of, I was really passionate about it way before I actually, I mean, this was about six years ago when I started reading about finance. So it was through natural interest and it's a really competitive field, especially in the U.S., Mm. I would not suggest anybody who's not really passionate about it to actually try and pursue investing. I mean, it's no different than if you, if you become a doctor or engineer. I mean, if you think that you just, there's a lot of money in finance, uh, that's only if you are able to ascend to the maybe the, the highest leagues in yep. finance. Mm-hmm. And so that would be, that would take a lot of effort and time. And so if you're not really passionate I wouldn't say you should, but if you are, then, you know, this is 
wonderful place to be, especially in the U.S. Mm. And also in India as well. It's very rapidly growing uh, industry, I would say, asset management in India. Um, my advice would be the advice I got. You have to develop your craft for a number of years and you have to learn from the best, stand on the shoulders of the giants. So if you can find mentors, for in my life I had Mr. Ramadeo Garwal, Mr. Joel Greenblatt. You could possibly find a few either through books or maybe if possible in person. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. That will cut down on the learning curve. So tell us about the universe of stocks that you look at. So I look at India and the US. We are not restricted by market cap or by any specific industry. So we have a screen that we've developed. It's called mm-hmm. Global Deep Values, a proprietary valuation strategy that we apply as a filter of stocks. A filter that screens out a lot of stocks that are already high quality, employ a modest amount of leverage, and uh, are cheap. So those are our sort of three tenets. And um, after that, I just do risk analysis, layers upon layers of risk analysis. So it's more active deselection rather than active picking because the strategy already does the, the hard work for us. We just go through what's the quality of management. Are they doing any sort of accounting manipulation? Is the balance sheet strong enough? Or was there some sort of a temporary upsurge within the industry which allowed the stock to clear the screen? So it's not actually cheap. It's a value trap. So we check for those. Yeah, so it's not really any specific industry uh, or any, but it it is mostly stocks. I like um, to talk about specific things where we talk about jargon and try and explain that jargon for people, you know, people listening to this have have got um, no idea about the stock market or valuing a company. But you you mentioned a small amount of leverage. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So leverage is taking on debt to finance your operations. If let's say somebody has a bakery and he starts that bakery off with $1 million, uh, out of which 700 is his own money, 300 he takes from the bank. Those $300,000, that's leverage. Leverage and debt are pretty much the same thing. It just, when, when the business is doing well, they call it leverage. So it's leveraging <laughs> up the returns. Yep. When it's a burden, they call it debt. And you mentioned the balance sheet. Debt or leverage shows up in the balance sheet. Is that the case? Under the liability section, mm-hmm. you would have long-term debt, current portion of long-term debt, short-term debt. And then you would have other liabilities, which would be accounts receivable. Mm-hmm. It shows up within the balance sheet, which sort of serves as um, it's like a snapshot of the business at any given point in time. And uh, this can all be fi- found in an annual report? Yes. Annual or quarterly reports mm-hmm. have financials for the company for that given period. Getting back to Warren Buffett, this is his favorite mm-hmm. reading, isn't it? Reading company reports. Yes. Um Mr. Buffett typically reads about five to six hours a day. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of things. It's newspapers, it's annual reports, it's um, proxy statements. In his younger days, he used to read about actual investing. Mm-hmm. So economics and maybe investing books, like uh, security analysis is probably the most recommended book by him. His reading is sort of more diverse, but as he has matured, it's more about what's going on. I mean, specifically, he reads about what's going on in one particular industry, mm-hmm. mostly microeconomics. It's, it's, he doesn't read other analyst reports or mm-hmm. opinions. He just, he's, trying to, he's trying to gather as much data as he can 
and then make a decision based on that. One of our other guests has mentioned the idea that um, one of the best ways to learn about investing is to take a small holding in a company, you know, just something very small that you can um, that you can afford, and then study everything you can about that particular business, and especially by reading all of the reports and everything that you can about that industry. Do you have any sort of advice like that for a new investor? Yeah, but I think that advice is pretty much spot on because we do have analysts and these are really smart kids from mm-hmm. top business schools here. And, um, and they already have a background in finance and economics and maybe accounting. But when they're faced with an annual report, you sort of have to, investing is sort of like a combination, counting, economics, and then psychology. Mm-hmm. to an extent. They're not able to synthesize those things because it's not really taught in business schools, business valuation or how to read an report. What they end up doing is they start applying formulae and they start looking at just the ratios, which is is inadequate amount of research. You have to be able to understand accounting uh, so fluently that you can just glance at something, a financial statement, and then you can glean a story about the company from it. And I think that sort of takes a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So you really have to be very comfortable with accounting. It's accounting and also economics. And I think a lot of people in corporate finance don't know economics. And uh, if you don't know both of them, like finance doesn't really teach you a lot about investing. This is shocking news to me that um, people are coming out of these schools and they can't read a balance sheet and they don't know about economics. <laughs> That is actually surprising because it's not something that you can, I mean, even I was in business school not so long ago and um, there there was no class on business valuation anywhere. I mean, Mm -hmm. in any of the business schools. Um, And that's, that's the, you have to take a stock and you actually have to start reading the financials, actually start investing. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. They do it at very surface level. Mm -hmm. Like they'll have you build out models. Yeah. And models are—they are, they are sort of useless. You can't really never—you're never going to be able to, to project anything accurately, a hundred percent. The CEO of that particular company won't be able to say this is exactly how much money we will make uh, in the next quarter. So that is a futile exercise, and they focus a lot on that. It's not like an exact science investing. Mm. So they approach it with the wrong mentality, I would say. Off the top of your head. Is there a particular stock that we can just focus on for a moment and talk about and um, how you value that particular stock? Um, so I think probably the best stock that I found overall is Lamb Research Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, by um, the way, this is not, this is not any um, advice to buy this particular stock or anything. Yep. We're just using this by way of an example, okay? Yeah, so it's a semiconductor equipment supplier. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they... So semiconductor is basically a device that has a zero-in-one circuitry. It allows you to transfer electrons from one place to the other. Basically, it's much like a calculator, like a micro-calculator. And so anytime you're processing or calculating anything, velocity, graphics, or sound, you need processors. And those processors are based on semiconductors. And so that technology, that industry, if we start with how I go about it, look at first the demand, then the supply, all the competitors, then I would look at What's the management look like? Then I would look at valuation. And then after I've done all that, I might get a range of intrinsic value for it. So in case of LAM, semiconductor industry is growing at about 15 to 20% a year, which is quite handsome. LAM research 
within that whole industry is positioned as an oligopoly. There's no direct competitor to LAM. There's maybe Applied Materials and Tokyo Electron, uh, but they all have slightly different processes. The reason why they don't have any, like the moat or the competitive advantage that LAM has is it's a really very sophisticated type of production. If I was Samsung and I wanted to make, let's say, memory chips or processors, I would have to build out a facility that would have, that cannot have any dust particles whatsoever. It has, like, you can't even breathe. So they have to put on the whole gas mask and mm-hmm. uh, like the oxygen cylinders. So they don't pollute the air because it interferes with the production process. So it's really hard to, first of all, they've been doing it for decades. And so it's hard for, for some newcomer to actually come in there and, you know, try and replace them. And there's also this great economies of scale. I mean, the more business they do, the costs keep coming down. So for me, as an entrant, as a competitor, I can't do it cheaply than them. And I can't do it better than them. So it sort of is a natural oligopoly because of that. So that is a sustainable competitive advantage. The bigger they get, the the stronger their competitive positioning gets because of that scale advantage. So that's the second part. Third is that the management is pretty smart. They buy back stock when it's undervalued. They employ almost no leverage. And the business is a high quality business. Return invested capital on an incremental basis is in excess of 50%. So it's a really high quality business. I think they have to invest like 300 million and they get 800 million out. So that's the measure of the return on invested capital. Is that uh, correct? Yep. That's the metric. Yeah, that's the metric. Mm -hmm. If you were to measure quality of any business, you have to look at what's the return on invested capital and can they maintain it? So yes, we're talking about management. They're really diligent. They take care of their shareholders. They're not diluting equity. They're not doing value destructive M&A. They're not doing any of those things. When we look at the valuation, it's trading at, I think, a PE of less than 25. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's, it's a lot lower now, I guess. For a company of that quality, that is also growing at 15, 20%, that's a, that's a really cheap valuation. Mm-hmm. This is one of the basic valuations, isn't it, PE? Tell us a little bit about that in this case. So if I have a farm that's producing a million dollars worth of income for me every year, if somebody else comes to me and offers to buy that farm for $10 million, that's a PE of 10. If he offers to pay me $20 million, it's a PE of 20. And it's price earnings ratio, isn't it? Yep. Yep. It's price to earnings ratio. Mm-hmm. Its significance is that it shows you how expensive or cheap something is. Mm-hmm. In this case, a stock. So for Amazon, it's like 100. That's very expensive. That, that's the tricky part. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, it is growing really rapidly. So it's not just you're not paying the, for the million that it's producing right now. You think he'll be able to take that million and buy another farm and then another farm. So we'll have like five farms that will each produce a million, maybe five to six, seven years from now. Mm-hmm. And so you can pay up in that case, but there is a limit. And that's where it gets really complicated. Should you pay up for growth? And if it doesn't happen, like with Apple, Apple were growing rapidly. Mm-hmm. But in the last five years, they just beat it out. Um, so if you were betting on Apple continuing their growth story uh, indefinitely into the future, or even five, 10 years down the line, you would have overpaid for Apple. Mm-hmm. The best example of uh, an overvalued stock is Microsoft, or it used to be. So in 2000, Microsoft was trading at about $60. 
at peak of the dot com bubble and in 2014 i think 14 or 16 it was still trading at 60 so basically microsoft did really well and they grew a lot but not enough to fit into that valuation so that is the other place where people make mistake just because something is going to do well in the market as a business we all know that amazon is going to do well it's almost certain doesn't mean that the investors are going to do well mm. with amazon you have to sort of come in at a price that's a fair price and that's that's part of the art of what you're trying to do is not only to find the good business but to get into it at the price that makes it yeah. worthwhile for you exactly some businesses are like that farm that grows they mm-hmm. can take a million and they can open another farm another farm those are wonderful businesses to hold on to because the value is going up mm-hmm. uh, year after year other businesses are like uh, you have one farm and there's no need for another farm there's no demand for it but you can buy it for like 500,000 mhm instead of 5 or 6 million dollars instead of the 10 million dollars mm. it's just that cheap we ideally want something that can do both mm-hmm. that we can buy for cheap and is also going to grow and that's why lamb research is that unique stock it's also cheap about 20 30% undervalued and it's also growing 15 20% a year you mentioned um one of the qualities of lamb is that they uh, do buybacks tell us about that why is that um an indication of a good business and what is a buyback so buying mag would be if i have if i'm google let's say and i have 100 billion dollars in cash that i cannot invest back into my business i can't open up maybe more server mm-hmm. servers that will hold on to connections what would i do with that cash i can either return it to the shareholders by paying a dividend or i can if my stock is cheap i can buy back my stock if i give it back to the shareholders it's up to them what they do with it mm-hmm. but if i know that my stock is 30% undervalued i'm giving them a 30% return by buying it back google it will buy its own stock and that's good that's good for investors it then again it depends on the company so if that's actually the, the sign of quality management if you think it's undervalued and they're buying it back then it's a great thing mm-hmm. however it's uh, it's a bad thing if they're doing it because everybody else is doing it and that we see that happen a lot as well people will or ceos will just buy back stock because other ceos are doing that mm-hmm. and it's actually detrimental to do that because uh, a lot of people were actually complaining about it that companies are taking a stimulus package and the buying back stock instead of uh paying their employees and keeping the business uh intact. Yep. So this is uh where there's so much art in this in valuing companies, isn't it? Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's why it's interesting. It's it's mm. not there's a human element to it that makes it really interesting. Yeah, I can hear this when you when we're talking about this that you'll you'll give one example of something like that buybacks are good, but then on the other hand they sometimes in some cases are not so good. Well, actually it's often not that good. Mm-hmm. Uh but most managements I would say they're not incentivized to mm-hmm. do well for the shareholders. Mm. they get compensated typically based on what the compensation committee of that particular company might decide mm-hmm. but it's typically uh, the earnings growth or revenue growth well that is not the metric because i can sell a 100 dollar bill for 90 and i can sell a lot of them and it will show up as growth but even the bottom line might grow but you are essentially it, it would be like if i took 11 million dollars from the bank I invested in my farm and I only produce 5 million from it. 
Mm-hmm. So you you are destroying capital, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a lot of them do that. Okay, well let's uh, talk about Iron Hole Capital, and if uh, people want to get in touch with you. Um, so Iron Hole Capital is a value based hedge fund. We are based here in New York, Manhattan. We invest for the long run. We invest mainly in equities. We might do a little bit of credit default swaps and other sorts of. We might exploit those hedging instruments as well from time mm-hmm. to time. But mainly we invest in India, in the US, and I think that's where the edge is. So if I were to describe our investment strategy, we invest typically, we have a 60-40 split uh, of India and US, and sometimes it reverses depending on the market. And we are sort of the few hedge funds that invest. It's not truly globally, but it is still binational. Mm-hmm. And um, people don't really understand India and they don't understand the prospects, the wonderful prospects it, it actually has. And so they sort of are ignoring it. And so the Indian markets right now are sort of like U.S. markets of the 50s, uh, where you can find a $100 bill for $70 mm-hmm. or even less than that. And so people are sort of missing out on it. There are only about less than 500 mutual funds and hedge funds combined mm. in India, mm-hmm. compared to about 10,000 in the U.S. There are about 5,000 listed stocks in India and about 3,700 in the U.S., so you have a situation here that where you have a lot of eyes on those few stocks and it's really hard to find bargains. I mean, you do obviously find them from time to time, mm-hmm. but in India, it's, it's like a everyday thing. There's, there's almost something tantalizing that has like an extraordinary upside mm. thrown at you every day, yep. which... And it's interesting with India as well. Um, a, a lot of people don't realize how young the population of India is and dynamic and well-educated, which is surely a tailwind. Yep. So that's actually the most interesting part about India, that the uh, the middle class is expanding rapidly. Mm. So the disposable incomes that Indians have will grow 10 times mm-hmm. in the next five years or so. So that will, obviously, that income would be spent on entertainment, on some regional luxuries, maybe some high-end luxuries. And at least for the middle class, they might, instead of having a car, they might have a car and a bike or two cars. Mm-hmm. And I see this with my friends. I mean, India has, it's becoming wealthier. I mean, all nations are to an extent mm-hmm. becoming wealthier, but it's growing rapidly. So compared to just a decade ago, people are in general a lot more well-off than yep. they were a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And that will continue to happen in the next few decades as well. Like asset management is probably the most attractive industry in India. Only about 6% of the entire population actually invests in the market, Mm. compared to about 50% in the US. And the population is also growing. Mm. So when we take those two things, combine them, it's, uh, you can expect it to grow at 15, 20% for a very long period of time. And so, and similar to that, there are other sectors in India that like manufacturing is really underutilized, it's really inefficient, the technology isn't there yet, unlike let's say China. Mm-hmm. They really have uh, state-of-the-art technology and so on and so forth. So India will get there and um, that will create opportunities for investors. Yep. Siddharth, thank you very much for joining us today on Stocks for Beginners. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.